You open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read a few verses there. That to me are not only interesting, but a bit challenging. And I've yet to this day come up with what I would consider to be the final resolution in my own mind as to why things are worded the way they're worded here in these verses. Luke chapter 5 verse 16. Speaking of Jesus... It says, then he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, very simply today, I want to talk to you about the subject of prayer. And the title of the message is taken from this text. The power of the Lord through prayer. But this is, for me, one of the mysteries in the life of Christ, which I have gone through in my mind. And as I mentioned, I've never completely resolved it to my own satisfaction. As to why this statement is made here, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And what I've come up with for myself is the fact that, well, the power of the Lord is always present. But if you think about Jesus going to Nazareth, his hometown, he does very few miracles there. And it wasn't because the power of the Lord wasn't present, it was because of the people's unbelief. And this is how I have resolved this here, is that if you look at the crowd itself, you see that there's reasons to believe that things that he was teaching were opposed and so on. But in any case, the power of Christ to heal on that particular day is preceded in the Bible by the 16th verse, which says that he withdrew himself, went to a solitary place in the wilderness, and he prayed. Imagine 50,000 answers to prayer. Even in most megachurches that have tens of thousands of people attending it, you probably would be hard-pressed to find there's 50,000 answers to prayer in a given period of time in such a multitude as we see in some places. Yet that's what is recorded in the diaries of George Mueller, one of my favorites, as you know. In just a space of a little shy of 70 years when that was written, he had received and recorded 50 thousand answers to prayer in writing. So if you're interested, you could buy his very thick, ponderous book of his complete works as far as his diary is concerned. 50,000 answers to prayer, many of which were answered within the first hour or the first day that he uttered them. 50,000 answers to prayer and dramatic ones. You have to read his story. You really should read his biography or his autobiography, and read the extraordinary answers that he had. Times when it was very, very desperate. But in his own words, he says this, I never remember in all my Christian course, a period now, and that was in March of 1895, a course, a period now of 69 years and four months, so almost 70 years, that I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Ghost through the instrumentality of the Word of God, but I have been always directed rightly. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not 
patiently wait upon God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the word of the living God, I made great mistakes. That statement coming from a man who had 50,000 answers to prayer, multiplied millions of dollars that came into the ministry when at last he had finally completed five orphanages that was taking care of 10,000 orphans, more than half the population of this city, all through prayer. Again, if you've not read George Mueller, you need to read his book. That he set out as a young man never to ask anyone, any other human agency for aid or help. Always ask God. So over the course of about 70 years or so in ministry, he lived to be 93, having wasted the first few years of his life, his youth, uh, sinning against the Lord and rejecting really the precepts of the Bible. If you go by 70 years that he prayed, his answers to prayer average on two a day, two a day. That he was able to put down, here's the request, here's our need from a broken furnace in the middle of winter like this, where orphans are dependent on not only the heat, but the water and food and all of these things on and on. But then there's an answer to it right there next to it, 50,000 times. And our text says the power of the Lord was present to heal them. For me, I can tell you in all honesty, over several months now, that I am dissatisfied with things in my life. That's not to say that I am not wholeheartedly seeking after God. Just that as I push forward, I'm less than satisfied with things in my own life, including my prayer life. When measured up against this book here, the Bible, what I notice in Christianity around the world and throughout its history is that we don't measure up to this book. It's the thing I keep noticing that troubles me. But I concern myself with myself primarily than I do other people. But to go back to here for a moment to George Mueller and to read it one more time, the second half, if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not patiently wait upon God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the word of the living God, I made great mistakes. I've read through several of his biographies and I don't really recall him talking about his mistakes. So I don't know what they were. But these are the mistakes that we make, specifically not waiting on God for his answer. So Mueller went on to write this. The temptation is to cease praying as though we had given up hope and to say it is useless. We have already prayed so long that it is useless to continue. Mueller then writes, this is just what Satan would have us say. But let us persevere and go on steadily praying and be assured that God is both able and willing to do it for us. 1987, in the summer, I came to this city as a candidate for a church that was open in my former denomination. Lots of questions are asked at that type of inquiry. And one of the questions that was asked of me, what is the first thing that you would do if we had you come to be our pastor? And I said, the very first thing that I would do is I would teach you how to pray. And that's how we began here. It's also how I began in South Yonkers and the Bronx. Prayer, the prayer life. I taught for one year on prayer before I even scheduled a prayer meeting. 
The idea was to thoroughly educate the population, the congregation, on the subject of prayer before we even start making attempts. And there's some of you that were here back in those days. We had all night prayer meetings where we started 9 p.m. and go to 6 a.m. We had daily prayer meetings at 6 a.m. We had all kinds of prayer meetings. And the church just continued to grow and people were saved and there was many, many great things that happened back in those days. So much so that local pastors were asking me what I was doing because they hadn't had that type of success in this spiritual climate. In one particular case, pastor and his wife had asked me, what are you doing to get the church to grow? I said, well, we're praying. And his response was, I know that, but what are you doing? I said, no, we're praying. And again, a third time, what are you doing? I said, we're praying. That was it. That was the program. Concerning this work here, Time for Truth, people have asked me, what is the plan if something happens to you? What happens to the church? My plan now is the same as it was over 36 years ago. Trust God. Now, that's not an admission of the fact that I'm lazy, intellectually or spiritually. I'm not. It's just that I actually don't have a plan to say, well, I have some really great candidates in my pocket that I could turn this church over to should something happen to me. I just don't have it. So I go day by day in many things in my life, not all things, but many things in my life, not without a plan as much as just totally depending on God to help me. Totally depending on God to help me. We sang this song. It's a good song. Grace alone. But how much does the average Christian really appreciate the word alone? Grace alone. Every soul we reach, every soul we intend to teach, every step we take, and all of this is only, only by his grace. Now, this is the part that I'm talking to you about, of being challenged with a total dependence on God. That was Mueller. I could talk about Hudson Taylor and others throughout the years who were in positions and in places where the only person they could depend on was God. But it never occurred to me that because we're in the United States of America, that we don't need dependence on God. Well, dependence on God in part, but there's other things that we can do. For me, I've always seen it as complete dependence on God. And again, that's not excusing laziness, intellectual or otherwise, but that's how I see it. I see what the Bible says when it says Christ is the head. And so during our communion services each week, I always remind you of what Jesus told us. Remember me. And this is how I see a total dependence on God. Which, if you're in that position, and I don't know how many of you actually are, is a difficult way. God says, one way or the other, go this way. And before you know it, you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And you are concerned about your life, you're concerned about what's going to happen, you're concerned about the economy, you're concerned about the way of the world, you're concerned about artificial intelligence. But let me say to you that if you truly know God, you don't have to be concerned. God actually does have things under control. Christian people who are taught in the word not to fear what other people fear, were taught that. Well, I would just chalk that off to the realm of immaturity may not necessarily be outright unbelief, just immaturity. You've not come to know that God is in charge. He always has been. He's not letting go of anything, and he's not letting go of you. He's not letting go of me. And the prayer life, when we start from the earliest book or 
the beginning of time in Genesis, carrying it straight through to the end of time. Prayer, along with faith, are the two things that undergird the true believer in the one true God. And faith is what we believe, but prayer is how we articulate it. I've shared this with you many times, but it bears repeating now how often our prayers are simply offered, but not truly believed that we're going to get an answer. Or as Mueller puts here, if the answer is delayed, we lose heart and we stop. One interesting thing about George Mueller's life is a man that he had prayed for to be born again, to be saved for that whole period of 70 years. Someone he knew. And he went to the grave at the age of 93, George Mueller, having never seen the man converted. But the man turned his life over to Christ at Mueller's funeral. We see answers to David's prayers long after he's gone. And the prophet's and the apostles, and of course, Christ himself. Someone has said that God has three ways of answering prayer. Yes, no, and wait. I find no easier to deal with than wait. No means no. Move on. And waiting is hard for the average person. Waiting for God to answer prayer. So people not only give up on prayer, as Mueller states, but men trying to please God, I'm not going to cast a dispersion on their intent or their heart. They invent their own ways to build churches. And from my point of view, and it's strictly my point of view, it's very noticeable in the type of converts they're producing. I talk to people when I ask them how long you've been saved, they're born again, they tell me 20, 30 years. So I just start talking the Bible to them and I'm amazed at how little they know. And I don't fault them. I fault the teachers, the preachers. My obligation is not to help you learn. And my obligation is to give you the information to learn. Your obligation is to learn it. Along with your prayer life and the Holy Spirit. And so when people start giving up on the prayer life, when a church is being built on prayer, which is exactly how Jesus said to do it, and that's what we see in the book of Acts repeatedly, they're building the church the way Jesus said to build the church, on prayer, and of course the word, the study of the word, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, we see a difference in the converts. When the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life, you see a difference in the quality of the workmanship, not fashioned by man's hands, with clever speeches and trim slogans so that the people are clever. And I'm not to judge who is and who is not saved, I don't know. The only thing that I do know is that Jesus said, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. But you, he says, have made it a den of thieves. So we won't go down that road today to talk about all the theft that's going on from pulpits to the seats where people are applauding some of these teachers. But we will accent the fact that Jesus intended for us to get answers to prayer. When we're sick, we have opportunity to go before God and believe God to be healed. But the old timers had a saying, and I want to mention it now, that God can heal or will heal every sickness except the last one. Everyone's going to die from something. Even natural causes is something. But putting that aside, when we're depressed, we have a God to go to. When we're anxious, we have a God to go to. And sick and broke and everything else, we have a God to go to who has given to us affirmative promises that he will answer our prayers. But here's the thing. 
As the prophet records in Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? It is a mistake to think, especially here in our country of America, that we make things move. We are the movers and we are the shakers. And all God has to do, and which he's doing around the world periodically, is start to really actually shake things. And all of a sudden, man is helpless. Not necessarily hopeless, but helpless. You've seen it in your life. I've seen it in my life. At one minute, I forget about grace alone, faith alone, the word alone. Before you know it, I'm shook to the core, helpless, but to go to God. Prayer should never be the last thing we do. Prayer was ordained by the author of this book and all the people whom he used to write it to be the first thing we do. Amen. Not the last thing we do. But again, knowing our nature, we often resort to prayer after we've exhausted ourselves in every other measure. Our sicknesses, our diseases, our depressions, our anxieties, and so on and so forth. Our seeking for a better job, all these things. Prayer seems to be the last thing in many cases in the average professing Christian's life. But here, after prayer, our verse here says, The power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then we see the healing begin at verse 18 and so on. Remember that Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. This is what I mentioned earlier that I'm struggling with at the moment. My dissatisfaction with my own life. And the reason I am dissatisfied, which... I hope to cover in just a few minutes is because I am pushing in. And as I'm pushing in, that's when you start to recognize your weaknesses. You will never, never realize where your faults and failings and weaknesses are until you push a little harder, go a little quicker. That's when you start to learn where your limitations lie. Let's look at a few verses here where Jesus guarantees answers. Keeping in mind, sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes God simply says, wait, I'm going to answer, but wait. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And it couldn't be more definitive than that. Ask, you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And there's no amendment to that. He doesn't amend it. We understand there's pauses, a waiting period at times. But listen, let me say it to you this way. When everything is lined up with the principles of this book, there are no limitations if God has made a clear promise on something, then we can go to that promise with complete confidence that God is both able, as Mueller wrote, and willing to fulfill it. When you are anxious, and many of you are, I'm anxious at times as well. I remind myself, God hath not given unto me the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Simple scripture, repeated it to myself thousands of times, 2 Timothy 1.7. So I first start with, this isn't coming from God. Therefore, I can reject it as coming from some other source, and I just reject it altogether. Collect my thoughts, collect my thinking, and bring it back to the book. In Matthew chapter 7 at verse 11, here Jesus reasons with us, and he says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Simply put, if you being sinful, 
If you, being imperfect, won't withhold from your own flesh and blood the things that are necessary for sustenance, food, clothing, heat, shelter, and so on, and we're imperfect and sinful, Jesus says, how much more shall the perfect Father not hold back anything that's good to you? Parallel verse in Luke of this one here, he says, do you think he's going to hold back his Holy Spirit from you? You see, he's reasoning with us. If we who are flawed, if we, and this is in the scriptures, often discipline our children, or at least at times, discipline our children for our benefit, meaning when kids are making a lot of noise or touching things and wrecking things, we may not have their best interest in mind at the moment, but ours. I don't know if there's too many parents alive that haven't yelled at their children to stop making so much noise or stop screaming or stop running. And maybe there's a lesson there for the children, but the main lesson is stop running, stop screaming, and stop horsing around. Stop! But then the book says that everything that God does for us in the area of chastening is for our benefit, always. In any case, he's reasoning with us, saying, if you who are imperfect know how to give good gifts unto your children, don't you think that God will give good things to those that ask? There's a challenge for prayer. And a question you should think about right now. Your doctor says it's impossible. God says there is nothing impossible with me. Luke 137 is one for instance. For with God nothing shall be impossible. That's a verse spoken to a virgin who's going to have a child without knowing a man. Because there's nothing impossible with God. Diseases are incurable from man's point of view but never from God's. Even with my own mother right now I always say this first, well, we can never limit the power of God. We can never limit, we should not limit, no matter how hopeless it may be, or look, or appear to be, it's not hopeless in the eyes of God. You gotta see it from a different perspective. Not from yours, or the doctors, or the team, or the what's written in the medical journals. You have to see from God's perspective that nothing is impossible with Him. Imagine if we really believed this. Now imagine if we really believed it. I said to you just recently, no one would have to tell you to sing or shout. No one's going to have to tell you to go out and tell others about Jesus. We wouldn't probably even need any classes on how to win souls. Why? Because the same spirit that filled the early church would be in us. And then to see God do what Mueller and others have seen, what this book records, it's only natural to want to talk about it. Someone has asked me just recently about sharing my faith with people, and I just, and myself, I don't have a program. I don't have a formula. Just talk, and just something always will come into the area of life, and this book speaks of life, and begin to just work from some different angle. And why do I do that? Because I'm getting paid? No, no one here knows how many people I speak to. You never see it. No, it's because that's who I am. As much as I'm six feet tall and blue eyes and so on, that's who I am. I did not select to be a preacher. God selected me to be a preacher. A woman sat on the other side of a desk one time. I was giving her some counsel. She was very angry and bitter at the things that were unfolding in her life. And I pulled up some verses and she says, you know, that's easy for you. Remember, you chose to be a pastor. I said, no, I did not. I did not choose to be what I am. God chose me to be what I am. That's a big difference. We read in Jeremiah that some were sent by God, some just went. We have a lot of that today as we've had throughout history. 
Some just go, God told me this, God told me that. Well, don't you believe it necessarily. In my opinion, there are very few people God is speaking to. But when I look at this book, all 31,108 verses, I got plenty to deal with that I know God has spoken. Amen. In any case, imagine if we really believed that God wants to answer our prayers. Imagine if you've been captivated or held captive all your life by fear and then really believe that God does not want you to live that way. If you really believed it, imagine how you would pray. Same with depression. Put in anything you want, as long as it's within the bounds of Scripture. But certainly fear and anxiety and depression is in there. Imagine if you really believe, this is not how God wants me to be. This is not how God wants me to live. He wants me free from fear. He does not want me fearing what the rest of the world is fearing. Imagine the change in your life if you were actually free. Now, Pastor, you're talking to us like it's insulting. Well, I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm trying to be provocative. I'm trying to provoke you to love and good works, not to a fight. I'm trying to provoke you to love and to good works. Imagine if you truly believed. God does not want me to live like this. God is not introducing these things into my life with one exception. That's chastening. But, and if I can get to this, and I hope that I can, you don't, once again, you don't learn anything by having everything go your way. That's how we pray. God, I want an easy life. Everyone wants an easy life. But when you're pursuing God himself, not everything comes so easy. But let me stick with the thought. If today, after all these years, if today, you scratch your head, stroke your chin, and say, I've lived in fear too long. And I really believe God wants me free from this. Doesn't matter how long you've had it. And then throw anything else along the way that, you know, that's in the bounds of the scripture. Anything you want. Everything about you, the way you think, the way you talk, everything about you is going to change. I'm fascinated by the human body. I always have been since I studied it in college. Every two to four weeks, your skin, all the cells in your skin change. So you literally don't have the same skin you had a month ago. Every five to seven years, every single cell and every part of your body changes. So you're literally not the same person you were five or six, seven years ago. Now, when you change your thoughts and you line them up with the scriptures, it's a complete change. And it's not dependent on age. We should not be, those of us that are older, the type of elders that talk about when I was your age. Now, when we give advice, we talk that way. What I'm trying to say is that because we're older, we should not be using our age as an excuse to say, well, I've gone far enough with the Lord. I've prayed enough. Because once you settle into that, you never grow from that point on. And you stagnate and you stay in one position and you never go beyond because you've reached what one scientist called the OK Plateau. We got things going as a church. We got money in the bank. We're okay. And at that point, we're no longer growing. We're no longer growing. We're now satisfied with our lives as it is. And what I think is even more curious is the fact that people are satisfied with their life. That's painful. Well, I've learned to live with the pain. Well, sometimes you have to, I think. But I would prefer to be healed. And so don't use your age as an excuse. Don't ask me, do I know how old you are? Because the answer is yes, of course I do. But if you want to use that as an excuse to me, you are going to get an argument. Old people have a habit of doing that. With their aches and pains and the slowness of age and things that come along with it, it starts to become an excuse to say, I've gone far enough. I'm satisfied. I'm okay. And God says, no, there's more to go. There's more work to do in your life. And if you get to that point, 
You will have the same thing that I'm experiencing now and I have been for several months, a dissatisfaction. I am not happy where I'm at right now. I don't mean the location physically. I'm thinking of the things yet left to do and the time I've got left to do it. So I'm going to the Lord and I'm also meditating how to accomplish these things. Because I'm not satisfied and I'm not going to slip into some it's okay mentality. Business as usual, not in this world. We need to be able to come to the place where we're dissatisfied and constantly dissatisfied so that we can keep on going forward and growing. Listen to what Jesus says here. In Matthew 18, 19, again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree, that's the operative word there, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. There's no amendment. That's just what it says. Remember, I'm concentrating on answers to prayer where God says yes. And we've got a lot of verses for that. But the key word is agree. I've told you that when I'm with people who are in a bad way, sometimes it's a life or death situation, a bad diagnosis, I ask them, you know, some people will say, oh, it's obvious what I want you to pray for, but even though it is obvious, I ask anyway, how do you want me to pray? I was at the bedside of a dying woman a couple of few years ago. Lots of family were in the room. When I came, they just automatically shifted out and left me alone with her. And I asked her this question. I said, if Jesus was sitting here right now instead of me, and you had the option to be healed and live or to die, which is where she was at, it was a hospice house, what would you choose? Her answer at the moment was, well, whatever God's will is. I said, what would you choose? You see, these are the type of things we learn. Of course, we want God's will to be done in our life, but it's always done according to the book. See, we make it up. We say, oh, well, God's will, if it's gonna, meant to be, it's meant to be. No, it's written right here what's meant to be. This is the Christian norm. It's the Bible. So you have to read it to find it out. You have to read it. That God wants to answer prayer. That God wants to deliver you and me and so on. Anyway, I asked her again. I said, if you could decide, would you want to live or die? And she was dying of cancer. She's in the hospice. She said, I want to live. I said, okay, then you and I will agree. I prayed with her. Went outside to her family. spoke to one particular member of the family. And I said, I just want you to know this is what we just prayed. But the answer that I received completely negated that prayer. Well, you know. It was at that point that I knew it was only a matter of time before we'd be having a funeral. Am I stretching things too far? I don't think so. That's what the book says. This is the only book. I mean, I have a lot of books, a lot. But this is the book I go by. What book do you go by? The one you wrote? The one that says, well, I'm too old. Joshua, Caleb. Well, you could include Moses, too. These are older men, 80 years old, saying, I want the mountain. I'm as strong now as I was when I was a young man. And believe it or not, these people do exist on the planet right now. They're old in their age, at a biological age, but they can do incredible things with their mind and with their body. And so we come to a place in this particular verse of being able to pray with one another in agreement. I used to meet with a man, and that's the verse that we used to use when we had breakfast every once in a while, once a month. He thought we should call our little get-together the Mutual Admiration Society. I said, well, let's just call it the I Agree Society. So we would put prayer requests before each other and agree in prayer. We have the power to agree. It was a pastor who had a parrot. And for some odd reason, the only thing that the parrot could say was, let's pray, let's pray, 
let's pray, let's pray. That was all that he could teach the parrot. So it was a lost cause. Then he found out in his church that he had a deacon who likewise had a female parrot. His was male. And all she could say was, let's kiss, let's kiss, let's kiss. And the deacon likewise tried to teach her other things to say, but that was it. That was as far as she got. So the pastor and the deacon are talking, and he said, well, I didn't know that. He said, let's try putting them in the same cage and see what happens. It was the deacon's parrot that spoke first. And she said, let's kiss, let's kiss. And it was the pastor's parrot who said, thank you, Lord, my prayers have been answered. (laughs) Well, it's not a true story, but the point is there. Imagine not having to have anybody motivate you because you're motivated by what God is doing himself in your life. You don't grow by being comfortable in anything. Doesn't matter, pick the subject, music, athletics, Intellectual pursuits doesn't matter. You never grow by being comfortable. Now, I'm going to say this to you, and you may get angry with me for saying it, but I'm going to say it. Maybe you're not interested in growing. Possible? Because it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. How many people, preachers included, just make themselves comfortable? They get in a niche. Church is doing okay. They're being taken care of financially and otherwise, and so that's it. That's it. This happens far too often. But I say this once again, not to insult you, but just to get you to think, you know, am I really interested in growing? If you have any idea of what the cost of growth is, you have to think about it. Because you're going to feel the stress and the pressure of real growth. Again, it doesn't matter what field you pick. doesn't matter. You want to grow intellectually, it's going to be stressful. You want to grow physically, it's going to be stressful. You want to grow in music, it's going to be stressful. You're going to stretch yourself. You're going to take yourself to places where you fail and then try it again and fail and try it again and fail and so on. And so there is a scientist, and this is a true story. He was studying the best of the best in every field to find out what made them the best. This was the task of scientist K. Anders Ericsson. And he studied many things, including people who memorize and all these things. I want to read to you just a little bit on this subject that you don't grow if you're comfortable. So taking from the book written by Josh Four, title is Moonwalking with Einstein. He writes, as a task becomes automated, the parts of the brain involved in conscious reasoning become less active and other parts of the brain take over. You could call it the OK plateau. The point at which you decide you're okay with how good you are at something, turn on autopilot and stop improving. Galton's Wall. Now, Galton, in 1869, he wrote a book called Hereditary Genius. And he believed that, we're talking about human potential now, not spiritual things necessarily. He believed that people had so much potential in areas of life and that was it. Couldn't go any further. It was called Galton's Wall. But K. Anders Erickson and his fellow expert performance psychologists have found over and over again that with the right kind of concerted effort, that's rarely the case, meaning that you have to stop at a certain place and hit a plateau, and I'm okay with that. They believe that Galton's wall often has much less to do with our innate limits than simply with what we consider an acceptable level of performance. In other words, it has less to do with your gifts and talents that does the psychological part that says, I'm good with this as far as I want to go. What separates experts from the rest of us is that they tend to engage in a very directed, 
highly focused routine, which Erickson has labeled deliberate practice. Having studied the best of the best in many different fields, he has found that the top achievers tend to follow the same general pattern of development. They develop strategies for consciously keeping out of the autonomous stage while they practice by doing three things, focusing on their technique, staying goal-oriented, and getting constant and immediate feedback on their performance. In other words, they force themselves to stay in the, quote, cognitive phase, their thinking. Deliberate practice by its nature, Fuller writes, must be hard. When you want to get good at something, how you spend your time practicing is far more important than the amount of time you spend. In fact, every domain of expertise that has been rigorously examined, from chess to violin to basketball, studies have found that the number of years one has been doing something, listen, correlates only weakly with level of performance. My dad may consider putting into a tin cup in his basement a good form of practice, but unless he's consciously challenging himself and monitoring his performance, reviewing, responding, rethinking, rejiggering, it's never going to make him appreciably better. Regular practice simply isn't enough. To improve, we must watch ourselves fail and learn from our mistakes. Now that's in the secular realm. But I would submit to you that it's very much the same in the spiritual realm. Jesus in John 15 talks about the pruning process. That hurts. When God is cutting you back. He may be cutting you off from people. He may be cutting off other areas of your life. It's painful to grow. My subject is prayer. Once we fall into the okay plateau, we stop growing and things stop happening. It's like your car. When your foot is on the pedal and the gas is flowing, it can go on indefinitely depending on you know, how much gas you have. But once you throw it in neutral, take your foot off the gas pedal, now it's going by momentum, not impetus. Simply going by momentum from 65 to 60 to 55, you don't even realize that you're slowing down. Well, in a car you do, but in the spiritual things you don't. You don't even notice that you're not growing anymore. Sin, let's say, for example. You've struggled, some of you have struggled against certain sins for years. Then you come to the place where you just basically make an excuse for it. And it's time to stop making excuses. It's time to go forward. It's time to stop talking about the problem and resolve it. One way or the other to resolve it. It's time for the church to measure up to what Christ is looking for, not what the preacher is looking for, not what the bishop wants. What does Christ want? What does Jesus want? My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. That is what Christ wants. He wants you to be a person of prayer who is actually expecting an answer. Your failures, you should learn from them. But victory comes from looking at Christ, always looking at Christ. To be able to say, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. When your legs are so weak and your brain is fried, and you've tried it this way and that way and the other way, and it's just not working, the tendency of human nature is to give up, is to quit. I'm just good with it as it is. And Jesus writes to us in the book of the Revelation, to him that overcomes will I give. To him that overcomes will I give. He expects us to overcome. He expects us to overcome. And for me, that's where my dissatisfaction comes in, because I feel in examining my own life, or as Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. If you're not examining yourself, then you're in the okay plateau. I'm okay. 
But if you stop growing in Christ, it's not okay. No matter how old you are, no matter how many years you got under your belt, again, the older Christians, they like to throw that under the belt. Well, I've been here for 30 years, 40 years, and who cares? You can find new Christians many times have more faith than the older ones. Just like Jesus found there was more faith at times amongst the Gentiles than there was amongst the Jews. And we could find today people out there that will exhibit more faith than people who are sitting in front of a Bible every day reading it. Why? They slipped into an okay plateau and maybe don't desire growth. That's the question that you have to answer today for yourself. Have you come to a place where you actually don't desire to grow anymore? A question only you can answer. Many years ago, a couple of young people went to visit a very popular church in England, London. And they were met at the door by a man who greeted them and asked them would they like to see the church building. Well, honestly, they weren't really that interested. They came to see the preacher. But to be polite, they said, yeah, sure. So he was showing them around the building various things. And then he asked them, would you like to see the heat furnace? Which, once again, they weren't very interested in seeing this, whatever it was, how it heats the building. But they deferred to the man's request. And they said, yeah, sure. As they went down a flight of stairs, much to their surprise, when they got to this place that he called the heat furnace, and opened the door, there were 700 men praying that God would anoint the service upstairs. Wow. 700 men. And much to their surprise, the man who showed them the heat furnace was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, this is where the power comes from. If you've ever read Spurgeon, if you've ever read any of his sermons, that's where the power came. If you've ever read Finney, the power came from prayer, people praying, people praying fervently, people who say, as the old timers used to say, reverently and respectfully to God, we will not be denied. Just like the woman here had the demon-possessed daughter. Jesus said, it's not right for me to give the children's food to dogs. It was probably a proverb that she was used to hearing. She said, but wait a second, Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. Amen. And what she was implying was that your crumbs are better even than the king's meat. And Jesus said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. And the book says from that hour, her daughter was no longer possessed of the devil. Faith cannot be faith unless it's tested. And if you're in the okay plateau, you're not being tested, and you don't know that you stop growing. In this subject, prayer. The heat furnace of 700 men praying for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When many, perhaps, are used to reading his sermons, the man's genius, his theological genius, his oratory skills, never preached with notes, may not realize that what was undergirding that anointing was 700 men that gathered to pray before the service and during the service. So I'll tell you one last story. In a certain region of Africa, many were won to Christ and were taught to pray. And because of the flora and the fauna surrounding their little village, they each had an individual path to a place where they would go to prayer for them or their families. And so, of course, walking back and forth in that path, it gradually would just become dirt. And the way that the villagers, these new converts to Christ, could tell that someone's prayer life was lacking is that the grass was starting to grow again. So it became a habit with these people to point out to a brother, the grass is starting to grow on your path. And that's the question I want to leave you with today. Is the grass growing on your path? Were you once a person of prayer? Now there's some here who you've prayed prayers, but you were never a person of prayer. And that's really what I'm talking about. 
Becoming a person of prayer. When you're driving, something comes in your mind, you begin to pray. You're praying at home, you're praying in the shower, and of course your devotional time and all that. It's praying without ceasing. That's the challenge before you today. It's the challenge before all of us today. Is the grass growing on your path? And if so, what you have reached is the okay plateau. You're not growing. And things are not happening. They're not happening in the church. Well, we all know God's going to have his way one way or the other, but there's a mystery in the connection between pray about it. God promises to supply us with all that we need, but he says, but I want you to pray for it. So I won't go through that. We know we're instructed to pray. But here's the thing. Are you getting results? Why would we want to pray if we're not getting results? God doesn't need us to just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. God is looking for himself to show himself strong. He wants to show himself strong to us. He wants to show himself as a miracle worker, as a savior, as the one who can do the impossible when men say it's not possible and so on. God is desirous to do that. But is there grass growing on your path? Are you at the okay plateau? Are you on autopilot? Can never grow that way. Whoever is, and I don't know, in this room or watching on the live feed or listening on radio, whoever is the best prayer warrior amongst us, I don't know. But I do know, once you stop going forward, you're not growing. You're not improving. And that's what we want to do. Until God says, come up here, it takes our life, we want to keep pushing forward. Keep growing. But you must count the cost. You must count the cost. I want you to ask yourself the question, is this talking about me? Have I reached that plateau where I'm just not growing? You know, God help us and God forbid that we get to a place on a Sunday morning, particularly other events as well, when everybody who comes into the building knows exactly what to expect. And what I mean by that is that the preaching is just okay and the teaching is just okay and the singing is just okay and the prayer was just okay. That's not good. We want to be able to come starting backward that the preaching of the word of God is still challenging to you. It is still provocative to you and comforting and so on. Every time you want to be able to say, this is touching my heart. You want to come to church and hear preaching so that you feel you're the only person in the room and the preacher's speaking right to you. That's one of the, you know when the Holy Spirit is working, when someone says, I felt like you were talking. I've had people say, why were you talking about me? That's true. And they were serious. They thought I had singled them out, which I never do. I would never do that. That's the Holy Spirit. We never want to get to the place of reading of the Bible. It's just another day in the park, you know, another day. Ask yourself the question today. Are you at the okay plateau? And if so, what excuse are you making? The aches, the pains, the age. Oh, I'm up against the obstacles. Who's not up against obstacles? Everybody is. The obstacle becomes now the task. It becomes the thing that we have to do. Well, I'm having hard times and I'm depressed and I'm anxious. Okay. You know your pastor's been there. So I'm empathetic, sympathetic with you. The one thing that I don't like is when I meet a drug addict who tells me that I don't know how hard it is. I don't have to know how hard it is. I know how hard life is. And my life has not been an easy one. And your life has not been an easy one. But we cannot stop. We got to keep growing. We got to keep going forward. And when this seed of the word grips you deep in your heart, no one's going to have to tell you, go tell people about Jesus. Or even your local church, if that's the case. You'll just do it naturally. 
You have got to answer the question, have I come to the okay plateau, and what excuses are you using? That's the key there, because if you know what excuses you're using, you can effectively deal with them and stop making those excuses. I know that you pray when you need prayer, and you ask for prayer when you need prayer, and all of that is very well and it is very good, but are you a person of prayer? Are you a person that really prays? When your problems hit you, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's like God has ordained in my life to feel like I'm the only person on the planet. I don't know how to explain that. Surrounded by so many people that care about me, including my family, there's times I feel so alone. And I believe that that's the hand of God. Where God has said, now there's no one here. Do you trust me? I could make excuses to myself, and you'll never know it. But it'll show up in my preaching. It'll show up. Let's pray that God would make each and every one of us a person of prayer. And not just in the superficial way, but in a way that we see results and we see answers. And there's an excitement in our lives. Even under persecution, we could be like the apostles. It says of them, they were rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. I mean, that's joy. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Father, we pray to you today that we would be as you would have us to be, not as we would have us to be. We pray today, Father God, that we would all stop making excuses for why this can't happen and that can't happen and business as usual and okay plateau and all of this. God, help us to understand that life is hard. It always has been hard and growth in you was promised from the beginning to be hard or a hardship, but it renders such great fruit as we realize that we're becoming free from the things that bound us in the past. And it doesn't matter to you because you're God how long we've been bound by something in the past. It's just good to know that time means nothing to you. That you are able and you are willing to touch and to help and to deliver and to strengthen and so on. We bless you. We don't have to go around worrying. We can intelligently investigate what's going on in the world. With all these different things coming, we see the coming of Christ. We see the setting up of the one world government. We see the setting up of a monetary system. And all of the things that we've read in the book, we see it. But we are not to be afraid of it. We are to look up. Because our redemption is getting very close. Very close. And we are not to fear what other people fear. Help us, God, to understand these principles and others. That the power of the Lord would be present to heal, to deliver, to strengthen. Because we need you and we need grace and faith alone. So before we finish here today, if at the moment you can't answer the question for whatever reason, just think about it today, tomorrow. Are you growing or are you an excuse maker? You know, you got some excuse. Anything from pain to procrastination. That's your thing. Well, no excuses. No excuses. Let's just go forward, especially in the closet of prayer. So this is what we ask you for today, God. Let time for truth and the church, your church around the world, be churches of prayer where we see your hand move and have to acknowledge, as the Egyptian magicians acknowledge, this is the finger of God. Help the world around us to recognize this is the finger of God. Love him with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And then love one another. This is what we pray. These are your commands. This sums up the entire Bible, to love you with everything we have and then to love one another. Help us, God, in this hour of history to be people of power, real power that comes only from you. And we ask you this today, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen today? Amen.